This is the first of a two-part interview with Tom Bissell, a conversation that took five years to make happen. I was originally scheduled to talk with Tom for The Father of All Things, but had to back out at the last minute. So we tried again on Extra Lives, but Tom and I couldn't make that work. Finally, when Tom came out with this new essay collection, Magic Hours, well, it became inevitable. And what you were about to hear is a very comprehensive talk with a man who I think is one of today's greatly underappreciated nonfiction writers. Anyway, here's part one. Enjoy! Okay, so I am here with Tom Bissell, who is most recently the author of Magic Hours. Tom, how are you, how are you doing? I'm uh, delighted to be talking to you this, okay. this fine morning in New York City. All right. Let's start with, I suppose, the first sentence of this book. I think it's a pretty telling notion that the author's note is, the first essay in this collection was written by a 25-year-old assistant editor living in New York City, and the last was written by a 37-year-old assistant professor of English living in Portland, Oregon. Now, this is interesting because you are now no longer living in Portland. You are now no longer an assistant professor. Uh, I read an interview you did with Owen King, and I learned that, in fact, your video game script writing is also sort of, I guess, in this tetchy, peripatetic vocational mode. So my question to you is, uh, well, what do you think accounts for this existence? Were the early roots basically set down with this whole aborted Peace Corps stint? I mean, what of this? What do you think accounts for this constant travel on your end? I guess I, yeah, I lived in New York City for nine years with a couple stints away, uh, one in which I spent seven months living in, in Vietnam. I spent a summer in the Canadian Arctic. So I'd live in New York City and then go to places and spend time there. And, and, and then uh, I won the American Academy of Arts and Letters Rome Prize. Yes which is a great thing, but it also kind of wrecked my life in some very curious way. I mean, I don't want to say that to give the impression that I'm not hugely grateful and it's not an amazing prize. But from there, I wound up moving out of New York with, without ever really meaning to. Yeah. And then I, I lived in Rome for a while, and then uh, I got this fellowship, and I moved to Vegas, and then I decided I want to move to Estonia, and then that didn't go well, and then I decided oh, I need to get a job. So I got a job as a, as a professor and at a time when it was like really hard to get them. So then when I was offered this thing, I was like, oh, God, got to take it, got to take it. You know, economic downturn, apocalypse coming, yeah. cats and dogs living together, you know. And so I, I – uh, that's a Ghostbusters reference. Of course so, I got it. <laughs> for the audience. Uh, so I moved – Well, unlike, to, unlike uh, William Mather, you do have a penis. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> you just doubled down on my Ghostbusters <laughs> reference. So I moved to uh, Portland thinking that this is where I was going to be for a while. And just for various reasons, it just didn't take. Um, so – I recognize that this is like a, a chaotic last few years that I've had as a person and a writer. They haven't felt that chaotic. Every, every step that I've taken has kind of been, seemed like, well, this is obviously what I have to do. But looked at it objectively, I mean, I can't believe I've written anything, you know, yeah. considering the amount of places that moving. As I get older, I mean, I just get more and more books. So my girlfriend and I just moved to Los Angeles, and the movers, when they greeted us, they were like very hostile right away. And hostile. I was like, why are these guys so mad at me? And then... Books? <laughs> yeah, was the yeah, books. Yeah, like, I, I know. Having moved like, many times myself, that's yeah. always the pain in the ass. right? Yeah, there. man. Yeah. And for the first time in my life, for the first time in my life, I was like, yeah, I think Kindles might make sense. Because you might move because next I, year. Because I might move. But yeah. so now, um, you know, if I had my druthers, I would live in New York City again. Yeah, but you live in L.A. right we now. We live in L.A. Yeah. And, and, um, How long do you think that will last? 
Um, I'm determined to live there for at least several years, and we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. But the peripatetic, picaresque instinct might actually seize you again? Is this something that you can entirely tame, do you think? <laughs> I can't. No, because, the, like I said, New York is the only place that's ever just never stopped boring me. Mm-hmm. And I get bored in places, and, and then I want to be somewhere else. And, and New York is really the one city that... I never got sick of it. I just even when I'm back here walking around, it's just the most amazing place. And 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 every neighborhood is. And I'm sounding like it's just a hackneyed, New York loving cliche monger right now. But every neighborhood you walk through is interesting. And there's and there's just, you never get tired here. You never get tired of it. Well, let's talk. Let's look at this from another point of view through the writing. In this book, you have uh, Escanaba's Magic Hour, which demonstrates how the recreation of this real world on film leads to uh, some problems because there are these stiff regulatory pronouncements upon the Escanabans. Uh, is that how I would say it? Escanabans? Escanabans yeah. Okay, fantastic. Don't want to go ahead and, uh, and uh, rebu- be rebuked by a local or whatever. Escanabia Knight uh, would, yes, uh, exactly. would be the... Exactly. Um, it's interesting that you ended up talking with Herzog when you did because Rescue Dawn is that not a recreation of a quasi-recreation? Yeah. Um, then you also, of course, piece together details of your family from this photo in The Father of All Things. Um, and then if we go ahead and factor in your stints in Uzbekistan, the trip to Vietnam, being embedded with the Marines in 2005, much of this has also involved some effort on your part to try to find a relationship with the real world. Um, now, with video games, much of your time, I would say, is spent working in fictitious worlds. Uh, you know, you describe the world of Grand Theft Auto 4 at the end of uh, Extra Lives as real as Liberty City seems. You have no hope of even figuratively living within it. So I have to ask you about this. If Edmund Wilson said that the human imagination has already come to conceive the possibility of recreating human society, how does your imagination work? Why these efforts to take stabs at recreations over the years? That's a rather enormous question, but I want to sort of see if we can roll the ball no no i and this is what where i think you're really onto something is that um i think some people the conventionally minded readers would look at my interest in something like grand theft auto having you know started out as a travel writer to quote real places and would look at this as a kind of alarming drop in quality control on my part but i'm really interested in travel both literal and figurative right and i'd like to think my books uh, and this is something I've consciously sort of tried to create in my books is a sense of, you know, realities within realities. And that's that, that photo thing that you, you mentioned, which is um, the beginning of The Father of All Things is this book I wrote about my dad's and my relationship and his relationship to Vietnam and a, a generational relationship to war that we both uh, had a different version of that. And, and I took this photo and basically kind of ginned a hundred page section out of just looking at this photo and I don't think that's terribly different from my interest in video games in a weird sort of a way I don't think it's that different from planting yourself in a place like Uzbekistan which I didn't really have any right to write about you know and you still feel that now yeah yeah I mean you you know as a nonfiction writer who's I'm not an expert on anything I'm just interested in a bunch of stuff and sometimes those interests fade um, but aren't those interests enough? Isn't that curiosity the ultimate drive that causes you to recreate in some sense? I hope so, yeah. 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 So this idea of, 
of loving worlds, both real and virtual. And my favorite is like, I think the driving thing behind my entire app or my, my entire like goal as a writer. And I think my interest in games is, is finding yourself in this like densely created place that human beings have populated with detail and incident and then just running out there and finding out what's there for you. Now it may be pathetic <laughs> from a certain perspective that I've, you know, gone from traveling to places like Vietnam and Uzbekistan to surveying these digital worlds. But I try not to think of it that way because I think both, I mean, like John Sullivan's piece about Mike, Michael Jackson says, yeah. anything that is, is real. And I really believe that. Um, cause he was talking about people who would criticize Michael Jackson's new face. No, anything that is, is natural. And that, and that I think is a, is a really wonderful insight. Um, and I think it's true. Anything that is, is natural. Yeah. But I'm wondering if when you're writing about something like, uh, say, you know, a sitcom television producer, as you do in this book, and you have to hit the tropes of, okay, here we are at the rehearsal stage. Here we are with the joke writers trying to revise the joke so that the, it gets the biggest laugh for the audience. What is interesting is the whole incident with the luncheonette at the beginning, the hard work, the failure at the beginning, getting fired from My Little Pony. <laughs> um, those are very human moments, and it almost seems to me that you, particularly a guy like you, who is very much interested in the complex details of any world, it must be difficult to, to find a way to sandwich those moments into a profile along these lines when, in fact, uh, you have to also meet the need of an audience who wants to know additional sort of details behind the scenes stuff about charlie sheen exactly, exactly. <laughs> i mean you know how do you negotiate the human in an essay like that when when it's it seems to me it would seem to me at least if if that is a goal of yours to be more difficult than say oh going in you know ravaged terrain and seeing a disappearing sea or seeing uh that there are no remnants of a military in, uh, campaign from decades before, you know what I mean? Well, this is the one thing that I think Wallace did so well um, in his essays, and um, which is he, he turned the act of noticing, the act of noticing things into into a kind of a narrative in and of itself. That the mere cataloging of things becomes the story in a weird sort of way. And I think the thing, and I've never done this to the degree that he did it, but when you read these Wallace pieces, like about David Lynch or about talk radio, he's always more interested in like the cameraman or, or the, or the uh, baton twirlers. You know, he's always interested in the kind of freak show qualities of the places he goes. And if you're profiling a hit sitcom producer, you can't do that you can't talk to the joke writer as much as you'd perhaps want to. Chuck, yeah. Chuck Lorre, the subject of the piece, still has to be the focus. So it took a long time to get those My Little Pony details out of him. <laughs> and How it, would you have to do to work him? Do you have to grill him to get the My Little Pony details? <laughs> kind of, yeah, because he it took him a long time to open up. And, and um, if there's anything I can say about like writing profiles, which... I mean, writing celebrity profiles. Yeah. I mean, why even bother? Those they're too they're too canny to like really open up to you, and their publicists are all on everyone's back, and there's all this quid pro quo that goes on with that kind of a piece. It's not even writing. It's just it's uh, it's like alien anthropology, right? Yeah. But someone like Chuck Lorre, 
who has a publicist, but I, I think the idea of self-protection is much less uh, pronounced with a technician type creator, right? Celebrity type creators are, uh, I don't, I just can't imagine ever being interested in writing about a person like that. So Chuck Lorre has all this, you have all this access to the ins and outs of like a fringe television job that he just happened to become basically the most successful sitcom producer of yes. the modern age. It's really interesting. But within that journey, there are all the like, the arcana of how one goes about becoming a successful sitcom writer. And the fact that he got fired from My Little Pony is, was to me, I'm glad you latched on to that because that was the most interesting detail in the yeah. whole piece yeah. to me. That from such a humiliation comes the great success. Yeah, yeah, and that, and I, you know, maybe is it, do you think this might actually be a common point because you seem to flip in and out with each books, with each project. Uh, I mean, I also read that Owen King interview that you had been fired or or basically pulled off of some of these video game writing projects. Yeah, you know, my first few forays into it were catastrophic. Uh, they, I, How so? Um, the first project I was attached to collapsed. Uh, the next one I wasn't really paid for, and I took my name off of it. Yeah. Then I got hired to write a sequel to one of my favorite games of all time, which I was like, well, here, claps hands, rubs them together. This is this is great. Then the, we, my co-writer and I did a ton of work, and then no one called us again. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Apparently our yeah. services were no longer needed after that. And I was ready to quit playing game, video games. I was ready to just say, you know, this is a bunch of childish bullshit. I want to just go back and be a writer again. And then this thing came through, which I will be able to talk about in a two, two months time. Two months. Announced, but it's kind of like a dream come true. I mean, it's, it's, it's just been amazingly fun. And, and uh, it, it was like two years of pretty steadily bashing my head into this world that I desperately wanted to be a creative part of. And, and then it just out of nowhere happened. So it's interesting. I mean, now we have published, I mean, let's, let's say 30 years ago, you suddenly saw screenplays in bookstores. And then maybe 10 to 15 years ago, you started to see comic book scripts published and found in bookstores. Video game scripts, as far as I know, that has not happened. So I, I have to ask you, you're, you're sort of on, on quasi-frontier territory yeah. here. And I'm wondering what the format of a video game script looks like. I've always wanted to know. I'm very curious as to, do, are you in a place right now where you can set the rules or is it as discombobulated as a comic book script where if you read an Alan Moore script, it's meticulously detailed, you know, where like one panel will have like three pages of information, right? <laughs> and then other comic book writers, they'll just be like just the dialogue and like medium shot or something like that. So, I mean, how does it work in the video game world? Uh, uh, and, and are you aware of the other formats? Are you working off the other formats? Or are you drawing more from your bookish experience? I, this is exactly the thing I was interested in. Like, yeah. I wanted to write for this medium, and I had no idea how one even went about doing it. So <clears throat> the thing that I'm on um, started out is just a bunch of people talking, the producer, the level designers, the artists. Everyone gets in a room, and they kind of figure out what they want to have happen. And that takes a surprisingly long time. Once that happens, they start throwing out level ideas. And then that's, and then they start figuring out where they're going to plant like the potted narrative material. And then the writers can get to work on writing actual final draft, like script sure. stuff. And then that gets endlessly cycled through everyone. Everyone has their say. You're basically writing for 40 people, and everyone gives you notes. And um, there's a wonderful piece in Grantland uh, by a TV writer 
a few months ago in which he said about notes that notes are like Yankees fans. Not all of them are awful. No, no, not all of them are bad, but all of them are annoying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, and then, and then you, you're doing the note stuff. So there's a very conventional script, right? Sure. But then you get into the in-game stuff, which is the stuff that happens within the flow of the game that is determinant, that is determined by, you know, player movement and player action and all that stuff is in it written in an Excel documents. So if anyone starts publishing video game scripts, I hope the pay, I hope the, the book is really wide because they're, 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 they're these massive Excel yeah. documents and you're writing in Excel grids, which is hard and weird because, you know, when you're a writer, you're just so used to seeing some rough approximation of how it's going to look. Yeah. Even in Final Draft, there's just something dignified about a movie script with that, that crunched yeah. up dot you know it, yeah. the, we know what that looks like there's no room really for the paragraph to be anything more than a squib basically yeah and you have to do your job to convey a lot of information and if you get particularly excited about it i can't even imagine that'll be probably difficult to compress yeah and even more so than, than a, the hollywood script or a film script because at least you can get the essence of it and that's yeah yeah and, and what's really weird is that half the time i you haven't even seen what are called the builds of the levels yet yeah, you're just yeah. going on the level designers like unpunctuated all cap description of what actually is kind of roughly happening in sure. the level. Sure. So then you write the dialogue, it gets plugged in, actors record it, and then surprise, surprise, the first person to go through with the dialogue written by people who haven't played the level, it, 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 none of it works. And so yeah. that, and then, and then, but you have something now, you have placeholders. So you can see why this would be like an incredibly fascinating process. Yeah. It's just this endless solidifying of everyone working in the dark fumbling around until finally when it actually comes together and it works um and just recently i got to play a build uh, of it with our dialogue in with the actors recording it and man it felt felt really good yeah i was like wow this process for 90 percent of it you just think why do they do things this way i mean they have to for all sorts of reasons but you think there has to be a better way than this and then when you actually see it all come together you're like i cannot believe this worked this is great. On the other hand, I'm wondering how you feel about the fact that a video game is going to be ephemeral in some sense, especially yeah. one that requires anywhere from 40 to 200 hours of gameplay. I mean, Baldur's Gate 2, I know Bioware is reissuing that. That game is like a decade, maybe more than a decade old, right? Yeah. You can't really play it today. It's going to look clunky. Yeah. Even though there's just an immense world-building component to that game, they have to actually now release an enhanced edition, which requires an additional makeover, additional yeah. resources. Tons it's not, of work. Yeah, it's, it's not like a book where, well, you know, we can still pick up Finnegan's Way, you know, decades later, and it's not going to be a problem. But for a video game... It's contingent upon whatever the present technological platform it's is, true. and, and or whatever the engines are. So, you know, as someone who is trying to create something in a medium that is also dominated by a colossal amount of money, I'm wondering how you feel about the the lack of permanence of whatever great work you are putting into many of these games. Um, I feel okay about it. If this were the only thing I were writing, I would probably feel slightly less sanguine about it. Yeah. But, I'm just viewing this as an incredibly fun way to support the other half of my writing career, you know, and and uh, if I can keep doing it, that would be good. If this game works and we keep going, that would be great. But, um, you know, if it doesn't work and uh, I have to suspect that, you know, there might be some video game world-based short stories that I'm writing about, yeah, about, yeah. about writers who were fired from yet another project. No, no, I'm just kidding. Um, it is ephemeral, and the games 
like I've talked to game I've talked to guys who wrote like games like uh, Planescape Torment. I talked to that guy, which is one of the most like beloved, most literary kinds of games from the last generation. And I've never played Planescape Torment, and um, I'm sure if anyone tries to pick it up today, it's it's gonna just gotta be like, God, you know, yeah. it's it's clunky and. So I, I, I guess I would say that this isn't anyone's bid for artistic immortality. You know, yeah. no one working in this medium, I think, is shooting for that kind of effect. They're just shooting for something. Like, my goal is to make action games, you know, a little smarter and a little bit more pleasant to listen to. Sure. That. But I'm wondering if, I mean, Sam Anderson wrote a article in the New York Times right. a few weeks ago about stupid games. The one factor he didn't really get into is this notion of longevity. The thing that made him very addictive to games on his iPhone, and is also one of the reasons why I don't actually have an iPhone, <laughs> because I know I'm addictive too. Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, is the fact that something that is small and seemingly manageable could turn out to suck significant moments of your life that could be devoted to reading, to writing, and so forth. Um, you want, to, I, yeah. you want to talk about that question? <laughs> exactly. I think I've, I have two points that have somehow mangled together in my in my interest in this question. But I, I guess what I wanted to say is if um, something like Pac-Man, which we can still play today on almost any uh, technological device, still perseveres, while Baldur's, Baldur's Gate 2 does not, while uh, other games that have had immense resources uh, poured into it do not I mean you know is there any solution to this problem do you think or this is you've you're actually touching on something that's that's very powerful and and really scary I think to game yeah. designers that the more effort they put in toward like I would say traditionally edifying storytelling experiences kind of the more you're dating them in a weird way like yeah. the, the less pleasurable they're going to be to play down the line I think it all has to do with like as graphics get better and that becomes and that's like the central aspect of the experience, right? The, the, the feeling of being in something that resembles a photorealistic world, or even if it's like, even if it's more stylized than that, it is something about the presentation is so crucially important. I liken it to when I, I try to watch VHS tapes now. Yeah. And it just feels like, you know, sunlight on a vampire. When you, when you put those in, you know, you're like, oh God, give me a DVD. Especially you know, like, if they've deteriorated after about 20 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. They're ju it's just so unpleasant. So Even the shifting line on the screen when you pause it is, is jarring because we now have such crispness for DVDs yeah. or streaming or whatnot. Yeah, so I'm totally prepared to accept that the kinds of games that I wrote about in Extra Lives and the kinds of games I'm interested in and even working on now are not going to be Maybe ever, maybe this is just a huge blind alley games have turned in, and maybe it's not even sustainable, and maybe this isn't where games were supposed to go. I am completely open to that possibility. Yeah. Um, and maybe games are at their best when they are small, disposable, compulsively playable, and maybe that's what they do best. Maybe that's true. I find that kind of a haunting, interesting question. And maybe, uh, you know, like the epic poem wasn't a very... There was no logical reason why the epic poem should have been so dominant for as long as it was. Yeah. And it died. And, f you know, forms of communication do stop being useful. <laughs> and maybe this is one of them that will 
share that kind of a collapse. Well, the other chief difference between, say, fiction and the epic poem in the video game is, for example, the fact that the epic poem does not require a software patch. It does not require <laughs> downloadable content. Or when you get into schemes of monetization or grinding, which the whole tribes thing has exploited to... Um, to annoying effect, I think. Because yeah. it's like, why would I? I'd rather have all my money go into it at once and not have to pay for it again. But of course, I think someone did the, did the tab and it's like $120 if you sink in all your money to the tribes thing. So the question I have is is this really comparable to, say, fiction uh, or even film? Because uh, it seems to be more driven around commerce and something that is disposable. Yeah. Almost the. Uh, digital version of the newspaper underneath the birdcage since we don't have that anymore right yeah. um you know where can you find artistic integrity if it's so driven around um uh, appealing uh, towards the, the this money-making scheme i mean you know in in the first essay in in this book as, as you're writing about your your life as an editor you know you're you're pointing you you quote emily dick dickinson about uh, you know, uh, basically the author being the auction. Publication is the auction. Publication is the auction of art. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so that leads me to to sort of say, well, perhaps it's even worse oh, in the video game world. It's, so, it's yeah. way worse. Yeah. It's way worse. And, and those are the parts of the industry that upset me and make me feel least, like, positive about it. But there are some game makers that are doing stuff that is truly great and, like, does have integrity. Um... And maybe I shouldn't say any more. <laughs> game like Journey, people like John Blow, um, Jason Rohr, there are game makers that I would throw up against any young fiction writer or young poet or young filmmaker and say that these are people of true artistic integrity, making things that mean something to them. Um, and I hope there are more and more of those uh, people, and I, and I know there will be. Sure. But there is an aspect of the video, modern video game world that, that is a complete, like, almost... A, exaggerated capital and almost like exaggeratedly capitalistic relationship between the consumer and the, and the product yeah. and that stuff if I think about it for as long as you're asking me to right here I do I do get pretty pretty bummed out yeah do you, do does the video game work that you do does it really encroach too heavily upon say your writing work and so forth do you feel there's now a fair balance that you've struck yeah, yeah. it's yeah. great actually you it's, don't have like an EA situation where you're being where you're working like 100 hours a week or anything like that? No, it tends to be really compressed bursts of time. Yeah. Anywhere from three days to maybe eight days in a row where you're just working, 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 working. And then you don't do anything for 10 days. And then you come back and do it again. So it's, it's kind of what you would imagine. It's what you imagine teaching is going to be like. Yeah, yeah. Except teaching is never like that. Teaching is just on, 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 on all the time, and then summer, and then you're just too tired to do anything, you know? Sure. But uh, so far, the game stuff uh, has been a complete boon for, for writing. I'm, like, writing more than I have since I was, in my, ever, maybe in my, in my whole life. Okay. I'm more productive right now than I've been ever. 